So Israel, who of course is Jacob, took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered a sacrifice to the God of his father, Isaac. Then God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And so he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I'll make you a great nation there. I will also go down with you to Egypt, and I'll also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob, their little ones and their wives, in the carts which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. So they took their livestock and their goods, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and they went to Egypt, Jacob and all of his descendants with him, his sons and his sons' sons, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all of his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. Jacob is going to end his journey of life in a distant land, in a foreign land, in Egypt. It's really not that unusual in your elderly years to end your life in an environment you're not familiar with. My own grandmother, Esther, who lived in Madison, well, grew up on a farm in Richland Center, Wisconsin, in the teens during World War I. She moved to the city because she didn't want to be a farmer's wife. And she grew up in Madison there and met my dad, Fred, or my grandfather, Fred, and they got married, Fred and Esther, and they had their son, Phil, and then Bob. So they, they lived in Wisconsin, Madison, and did a boarding house, and Fred went away to World War II for two and a half years with the 4th Marine Division, part of the Red Cross. My dad was a kid, you know, kind of a latchkey kid kind of thing back in the day, living in a boarding house with college students during World War II. Then they lived there all those years, and when I came into the world in 61, we used to go visit them in Wisconsin. So when my dad was in the Marine Corps in Quantico, we'd drive to Cleveland to see my mom's parents, then we'd continue on to Madison and go see my dad's parents. About every other trip, we'd make the extra journey. So when we saw Chicago from I-80, I-70, we knew that we were getting close to seeing the grandparents. But Esther had that house in Madison all those years that she lived in. She worked in a bookstore. She used to give me, like, Hardy Boy books. I read all the Hardy Boy books growing up. I loved them. I'd read them because, you know, it's flat freeway there, so you could read them in the car. So I'd read the Hardy Boys. Just loved it. But that was her world. And then she moved to Northport, Florida, on the Gulf Coast. So she lived there for about 20 years with Fred. She was very involved in her church. She was always connected with people socially. But then after Fred passed away, my dad had to bring her out to California. And she spent about the last five years of her life in the assisted living home off Bovier there, right above Vista High School. And even as a a young adult at the time, and then when Jennifer and I were married, when we came back from the East Coast when Esther was living there, we'd take Hannah to go visit her. And she first she was independent living on her own, then she was assisted living, and then she was full, like, looking back, I don't think it was memory care, but it was pretty advanced care. And then she passed away seven days into the new millennium, January 7th, 2000. It's easy to remember. It was the right after Y2K. But I often have thought about, like, how... Because I go by there all the time because my mom's house is still right across the street from there. And we even talked recently about my dad going there to to finish his journey, which wouldn't be that unusual because he lived in Vista and it would just still be Vista. But I think of Esther, you know, to grow up in Richland Center as 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 an attractive young farm girl, school with 11 people in her school, to move to Madison and then to do whatever it takes to get by. Your husband goes away to World War II and then you build this life after World War II. And you live in Madison all those years. And then you move to Florida. And then you end up in California in an assisted living home. That's a pretty quite a journey. Some of you have watched your parents take those journeys. Some of you have your parents taking those journeys right now. 
I can look around the room and I can say, certainly at least for a few of you, that your parents did not end the journey where they thought they'd end the journey, did they? We're not sure we'll end the journey. So of that context, we think of Jacob. We think of Jacob in the cart, a senior citizen in a cart, with this massive family of 66 people, still trying to calibrate that his brother, that his sons had deceived him about their brother, but he's so happy to go see Joseph, and they're in the carts, and they're going down to Egypt. Can you imagine what that journey was like? In just a few weeks, I'm going to be picking up my dad to move him to Huntington Beach, which will probably be the last stop of his journey. He's been so happy for three and a half years in La Costa. He lived in that house in Vista for 40 years, and he's done so well in assisted living in La Costa. But it's the same franchise, Sunrise, and mom's gone now, and we want him closer. We want him with Jake and Leah and the grandkids and the great-grandkids. So Pop's going to make that drive and just, I'm going to be like the sons of Jacob. I'm going to go get Jacob and bring him up here in just less than two weeks to a whole new beginning. My wife did that with her dad just a week and a half ago on a Sunday. Take the church van down there and load up everything with Timmy while he was eating breakfast with Sister Aunt Mary. They got here first, unloaded it, got him up, and then he showed up two hours later, and here's your new place. And he just keeps talking about how much he likes the ice cream. You know, there's a journey that we'll all make in the back end if we live long enough. Remember when Jacob was young? <laughs> and remember when he worked hard seven years as it was nothing because he was in love to marry Rachel? And then all the drama of life and, and then coming back to the promised land and afraid of Esau. I wonder when he was in the cart going to Egypt if he thought about Esau when he looked over toward Edom to the left. Because as you're going to Egypt from Canaan, Edom's to the left. And there's his brother over there. And his brother's the same age as him. He was born slightly before him, right? He, he grabbed his heel. You know, we don't read about Esau's ending, do we? We don't hear about how Esau ended. We just know about his descendants, how they're perpetual enemies of Israel, yet God showed them mercy that he didn't show the same mercy to other nations that were enemies of Israel. I think, what, he, what did he think, you know? And, and God, as he's going to a faraway land where he's going to pass, a land he's never been to before to end his life, he has the joy of knowing he's going to be with his son, Joseph, who looks like Rachel, whom he loved, and the tragedy of her dying in childbirth at the side of the road. I mean, you talk about being gutted by a life experience. But he's going to go see Joseph. Clickety, clickety, clickety. Through the Gaza Strip, right? Click, 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 right? I mean, he made this journey. And as he began this journey, he made sacrifices to the Lord. He was worshiping and sacrificing. The Lord was a part of this last journey. And I certainly intend to have him be a part of my last journey, and I certainly hope he'll be a part of your last journey. If there is a point where your adult children are taking you to some far-off land because it's in the best interest of how to take care of you and be with family during the famine, I hope that we will all be making sacrifices to the Lord when we start that journey. And whether or not we are, and no matter how we may feel, because Jesus promised to never leave us nor forsake us, I can assure everyone in this room who names Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior that if no one else is with you, which Paul said at the end of his life, no one else was with him, the Lord will never leave us. He will always stand by our side. So if someone drops you off at a pretty low-end elderly home, it's going to be okay. 
because Jesus is going to be right by your side. You make this journey. I make this journey. Do not fear that day, but sing praises, because we offer up this, the, the sacrifices of praises we're told in First Peter as unto the Lord. I've said for years I'm not afraid of getting old, but the more I see what getting old looks like, the more I'm tempted to be afraid of getting old. You're pretty bold, like, oh, I can, I'll surf big waves until you're in really big waves. And looking at them, maybe I'm not going to surf really big waves anymore, right? Oh, I'll teach those people a lesson. Off you go to war and you realize people are trying to kill you. You may not feel as brave as you thought you were. But the grace will be there. The grace will be there if you're Joseph sending carts to go get your dad to bring him down and take care of him because it's the best way to take care of him. You know, Jacob can't take care of himself in this story. Did you realize that? Jacob cannot take care of himself. He can't feed his family. God has kept his promises, and he is the grandson of the great father Abraham who had no children and was promised that nations would come from him, and now there's a a whole tribe. It's a family business. There's 66 of them. They're a whole tribe. And he he can't lay people off when they're in the family, and he can't take care of them. But Joseph has sent for him, and he's going to see Joseph. So on this journey, we need to realize God's gone before him. He's still praising the Lord, and God affirms to him that I will be with you. When Jacob was young and fled from his brother Esau, the Lord promised him at Jacob's ladder there at Bethel. He promised that I will be with you wherever you go. And it's the same promise we have through faith in Jesus Christ. And your journey might not be to assisted living or memory care or independent living. You know, I pulled up today at a facility and the sign said, uh, for a resident so-and-so. You know, that's a big deal if you're in an elderly facility and you've got a parking place reserved for you. That means you still have enough independent living and freedom that you might live in that facility, but you still drive a car and you can drive across the street to Panera if you want to for lunch or go to Vons if you want to. And you can wave to Huntington Beach High School students as they're walking across the crosswalk if you want to. It's very different than memory care at the other end of the building. That might be our journey. You might have other journeys. Great journeys to the unknown. This is a journey to the unknown, isn't it? Really think about this. We can just read this and go like, oh yeah, he's going to Egypt. No, this is radical. His father was told, don't you dare go to Egypt in his famine. Abraham, his grandfather, panicked in his famine and went to Egypt and that was disobedience to the Lord. But now in this famine, for him and his generation, God says, go to Egypt. Which just goes to show God has a different plan for every generation and every family, doesn't he? He doesn't change his character. He doesn't change his sanctifying work. He just has a different plan. Now, we get a list of all those that go with him to Egypt. And their names, and they're important people because the nation of Israel comes from these people. And I read you Esau's names a few weeks ago, his descendants, so I certainly should read you Jacob's descendants' names. Verse 8. Now, these were the names of the children of Israel, Jacob and his sons who went to Egypt. Reuben was Jacob's firstborn. The sons of Reuben were Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. The sons of Simeon were Jamul, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. 
The sons of Levi were Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. That's important because when we get into Leviticus and all that, the priesthood of the Levites goes through these three sons, and depending on which of the three sons you came from, determined on what you would do in your service as a priest. So Levi were Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. So the subdivision is very important in the book of Leviticus and uh, for the rest of Jewish history in the Old Testament. The sons of Judah were Ur and Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah, but Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan, which, of course, we read about previously. The sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. The sons of Issachar were Tola, Puva, and Job, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun were Sered, Elon, and Jalio. These were the sons of Leah. Now, remember, Leah had six children through Jacob, and these are all the children and the children's children. The sons of Leah, verse 15, whom she bore to Jacob in Padam Moran, which was Syria at the time, with his daughter and Dinah. All the persons, his sons and his daughters, were 33 through Leah. The sons of Gad were Ziphion, Haggai, Shuni, Esban, Iri, Aradi, and Arli. The sons of Asher were Jimna, Ishua, Isui, Beriah, Sarah, their sister. And the sons of Beriah were Heber and Machiel. These were the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. So Zilpah was the maidservant, remember, of Leah, and she had children with Jacob as well. Verse 19, the sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, were Joseph and Benjamin, and to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asnath, the daughter of Potphari, priest of On, bore to him. The sons of Benjamin were Bela, Becher, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mufim, Hufim, and Ard. These were the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The sons of Dan were Hushim. The sons of Naphtali were Jahaziel, Juni, Jezer, and Shelem. These were the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and she bore these to Jacob, seven persons in all. So remember, Rachel had a maidservant as well who also had children through Jacob. Jacob had children through the four different women, although we know that he just really wanted to have Rachel as his wife. Verse 26. All the persons who went with Jacob to Egypt, who came with his body besides Jacob's son's wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph were born to him in Egypt were two persons. All the persons of the house of Jacob that went to Egypt were 70. Then, verse 28, then he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out before him the way of Goshen, and they came to the land of Goshen, that of course is in Egypt. So Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel, and he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. And Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I've seen your face because you are still alive. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, My brothers and those in my father's house who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for their occupation has been feed livestock. And they have brought their flocks, their herds, and all they have. So it shall be when Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? That you shall say, Your servant's occupation has been with livestock from our youth even till now, both we and also our fathers. That you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So they get there to the promised land, well, the promised land of Egypt for them, how they're going to be delivered from the famine. And they get there to Egypt, and you notice in verse 28 that Judah is sent out to go to Joseph. And you know, we talked about last week 
how the story of Judah's redemption is such a powerful story in the book of Genesis, where he sold his brother in slavery to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. Then he had the two evil sons that God struck down. Then he was tricked by his daughter-in-law into intimacy, which really was holding him accountable for not keeping his word. He admits, basically, he's a loser, and she's better than him. And from that point on, he's a different person. Then he becomes surety for Benjamin when they have to take Benjamin to Egypt. And when not knowing that Joseph is who the governor is, when Joseph says, he stays here, Benjamin, he'll be my slave. And Judah says, no, please, I beg of you, let me be the slave instead of him. So where Judah, decades before, failed the moral test and betrayed the brother Joseph and sold him to slavery, with Benjamin, he was willing to go into slavery to keep him out of slavery. We talk about rematches and reconciliation, and it's an incredible story. So isn't it beautiful right here that Judah's the one that goes? That Judah is the mediator, the one who led the deceit against his father for 20 years on the coat of Joseph being torn to pieces with the goat blood? The one who led that lie and lived that lie for 20 years? The ringleader of the idea that he's the one here that goes before Jacob, his father, to Joseph the son. Isn't this beautiful? This is beautiful redemption. Our God is the God of second chances. In fact, if you ask Peter, he'll tell you he's the God of 490 chances. Because Peter said, I could forgive someone seven times. And Jesus said, you need to forgive him, you know, seven times seven. 70, 490. Isn't it awesome that God gives us second chances? But it's not limited to second chances, is it? I mean, can't we all give a witness tonight that the chances we get are way more than two? (laughs) Like, you know, I don't understand why unredeemed people don't want to be saved. I don't understand it. I simply don't. That they don't care and they don't value Christ. They don't value the promises. They don't know the hope and the promises. I don't understand that. I'm just really glad that I do. And once you're in the family, our Abba Father treats us as daughters and sons of the king. And it's an incredible thing to be adopted into God's family, Romans 8. And the blessings that are upon us. And though a righteous man be knocked down, he'll rise up so many times, a righteous woman. It's just, it's just beautiful. Judah is so beautiful right here that he's the mediator. Who would have ever thought when he betrayed Joseph into slavery that he'd be the mediator to bring, to be the, the tool, the vessel by which the father and the son are reunited. Wow, that's a boom. So praise the Lord. Remember I told you Judah is a hero last week. I mean, he's really one of those guys, like, you know those guys in sports, he cost you the championship everything by some bonehead play. And everyone knew it was the front page of every paper. And then somehow down the road, he's the hero, and all comes down to Judah, and he delivers in the clutch, and they win it all, and now he's a hero. That's really what it's like. It's just amazing to me, the transformation of Judah. And it only gets better with Judah. Wait till Jacob's prophesying about the 12 sons and what will their lives and descendants will be. Because of all the people that get the blessings, Judah gets the highest blessings. A scepter shall not depart from Judah because Jesus is the king and he comes from the line of Judah. Well, Joseph tells the family, look, here's the deal. Basically, they don't like shepherds in Egypt. You're like minimum wage. You know, it's kind of like when people treat you poorly when you have a minimum wage job, your first job. You always hear stories of people being abused in fast food restaurants by customers, right? 
And whatever it is, in the scope of things, shepherds were very lowly esteemed in this part of the world at the time and for a long time. Shepherds are the low end. It's entry-level work. It's dishwashing as a convicted felon. That's what it is. You get the job, and you do it. Now, they're obviously very good at it. So they're coming down. It's two different cultures. So not only is Jacob going somewhere. It's not not like going from Lacoste to Huntington Beach, like my pop. Southern California. I mean, OC is a little different than North San Diego County. It is if you've lived in both or hung out in both. You know, they're not the same, but pretty similar. SoCal, right? But still pretty similar. It's a completely different culture. Completely different culture that he's going to. Now we read about Joseph and how amazing he is in looking out for his family. I mean, he's, a, he's, a second, he's the number two guy in power in Egypt. His business plan is the model that's saving everybody. And there's five more years to save him. So I point out to you where it says in verse 31, then Joseph said to his brothers and his father's household. Well, chapter 47 starts similar. And obviously the reunion of Joseph and Jacob is just amazing to be reunited just so beyond comprehension, and we'll go forward with that as we go forward tonight. Then Joseph, chapter 47, verse 1, went and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers, their flocks and their herds and all that they possess, have come from the land of Canaan, and indeed they're in the land of Goshen. And he took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. And they said to Pharaoh, we have come to dwell in the land because your servants have no pasture for their flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now, therefore, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, saying, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and your brothers dwell in the best of the land. Let them dwell in the land of Goshen. And if you know of any competent men among them, then make them chief herdsmen over my livestock. Then Joseph brought in his father, Jacob, and set him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days and the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their pilgrimage. So Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before Pharaoh. And Joseph situated his father and his brothers and gave them position in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. Then Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all of his family's household with bread according to the number of their families. So we know now that Jacob was 130 years old when he came down to Egypt. Now, he's going to live to be 147. He's got 17 years in this faraway land, this different culture, to live out his life as he's fading in his elderly years. He's got 17 years. But notice Joseph. It says, Then Joseph did this, and then Joseph went and told Pharaoh. Then Joseph brought in his father, Jacob, before Pharaoh, That's in verse 7 there. And then it says later on, verse 11, and Joseph situated his father and his brothers. In verse 12, then Joseph provided his brother, his father and his brothers. Joseph is running point on managing the family. You might say he's power of attorney on behalf of the family. You might say he's the uh, executor of the estate. He's the proven one that's faithful to take care of the family. He's in charge. And isn't it awesome that someone in this family is in this position to lead this way? They have the connections with Pharaoh. They have the resources. 
They have the plan. They have the secure job. They've gone before them, provided a way. Listen, I think of all the honorable things you can do, it's take care of your elderly parents. Because while we talked about Jacob earlier, now we talk about Joseph. We are told in Exodus 20 to honor your father and your mother. And it looks like one thing when you're a toddler or in elementary years or high school. But when you become adults, honor your father and mother takes on like, you know, it's a transition thing. And then if you get married, then of course for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Honor your father and mother takes on different looks at different times in life, but it never leaves in life. It's not like it's not there. Now, we're told that Christ has to come before human relationships, so Christ has to be before our spouse, because the more you're like Jesus, the better it is for your spouse. And Christ has to be before our parents and our children. You know, it's easy to remember the word for children in Russian. Deities. It sounds like deity, like gods. And people worship their kids like gods, so it's an easy word for me to remember in Russian. I associate words. Rodetili is parents. That's a harder one. But deities? People have little kids running around. You watch people with their kids. They think they're little gods. Trust me, I did Olympic coaching. There are many parents who think their kids are little gods. The Lord has to come before the children, and he has to come before the parents. And Jesus made that very, very clear. Jesus is Lord of all, or he's not Lord at all. But when he's Lord of all, and Christ is enthroned in our heart, then we can be the best spouse the best parents, and the best adult children taking care of our parents. I've told the story when I was in Virginia. One time my mom had and I had this conversation over the phone where it was like one of these, and she sent me a letter, and she wrote Exodus 20, like verse 6 on it. I was like, what's my mom doing writing scripture on an envelope? She never writes scripture on an envelope. Well, I look it up, and of course, you know, I'm the pastor, right? I'm a Calvary Chapel pastor. I don't know what Exodus 20 is. It's the law. It's the Ten Commandments. And of course, it's honor your father and your mother. I was like, oh, mom, you know. <sighs> Catholic mom quoting scripture to me. <laughs> so you had landlines too. You know, you have a cell phone. <laughs> you know, one of those. But it goes through different seasons. And he's financially secure. And it's not about him and multiple homes all over Southern California. But it's about how to bless the family in a very difficult time. And how to bless his father in a very difficult time. Now, Jacob's interested in the story because he meets Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh's the most important person in the world. And you know, when you're younger, important people are extra important. I remember I met Reggie Jackson in the 80s when Reggie Jackson was like, you know, he was a World Series hero. Reggie Jackson of the Yankees in the Hall of Fame. And I met Reggie Jackson. I was like, like, Reggie Jackson. Listen, if I met Reggie Jackson, I'd be like, dude, Reggie Jackson. If I meet Reggie Jackson when I'm 80, he'd be like, Reggie who? You know, like, the older you get, the less you care. The less you're impressed. Right? I mean, you're, like, really impressed with important people when you're younger because you want to be an important people and you, you important people move up with other important people. Man, when you're 80, you're just like, eh? Listen, I just want that ice cream. <laughs> I don't care if it's Bill Clinton or Obama or George Bush. I just want the ice cream. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's how it plays out. We need that perspective. So what are you going to do? Jacob just blesses him. He blesses Pharaoh. Now, most people would be intimidated by Pharaoh, and maybe, I just don't think Jacob was. And, you know, Jacob's a heavy hitter in his own right. I mean, he is, after all, grandson of the father of faith, Abraham. I mean, 
4,000 years later, the nation of Israel is there, and we're called Israelites, and that's Jacob, right? Like, in the scope of time, Israel's by far more on the scale of importance, long-lasting, the heavier hitter between him and Pharaoh. And even at the time, he's a pretty important dude in Pharaoh's palace. But he just comes in and he just blesses them. And this makes me think about who, again, I want to be when I'm older. I want to be a blessing resident. You want to be a blessing resident. I don't know where he went, but for years, when I'd go visit my dad, there was the one guy at the La Costa facility. I, I've told this. I don't know why he singled me out, but one day I walked in, looked right at me, and he goes, praise the Lord! Like, right like that. I was like, I was like he's pointing to me. He's like, praise the Lord. Now I was like, praise him every day. You know, he's worthy to be praised. And so every time I'd see him, he'd be like, praise the Lord. I'd be like, praise the Lord, for he's worthy. He's the king. And the longer I, I would go down there, the more I'd see him, I'd, I'd throw out more scripture and stuff. And he'd be at the dining room table. And, you know, if you ever seen everyone elderly sitting at the dining room table, it was like four people, usually three women, because they outlast the men in age. I told my dad, you're always surrounded by women. He's like, that's because all the men have died. Literally, that's what my dad said. So he's always at a table with three women, but this guy would be surrounded by three women. And I'd see me go, praise the Lord, hallelujah, Jesus. And he wouldn't worry about it. He wouldn't thought at the table. Everyone's just, you know, they're eating like, huh? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. He's speaking blessings. Praise the Lord. Listen, there's plenty of people in assisted living that are not saying praise the Lord. In case you've never been. There's plenty of people that are cursing in memory care, in assisted living. Hey. Let's purpose in our heart tonight, we're going to be praising the Lord in assisted living. When they say, Joe, yeah, this is Pharaoh. Bless you, Pharaoh. Praise the Lord. Now, uh, where do you work, Pharaoh? Egypt. What would you say your name was? Praise the Lord. You think I'm kidding? <laughs> I kind of am, but I'm kind of not. Preview of coming attractions. Just think, because who you are today is setting up for who you're going to be on that day. If you're a spirit-filled woman and a spirit-filled man, and you have a joyful disposition, and you see the glass half full because Jesus is king, that's how you're going to be when you're in Pharaoh's presence in the end of your journey. Now, he says, few and evil have been my days and not been the same as my father. Okay, that sounds a little tough, but you got to admit, Jacob did have a rough go. Jacob had a rough go. And if you're comparing yourself to grandfather Abraham and pops Isaac, probably not the same. But you know, he's still blessing Pharaoh. There's a lot to think about right there. I think it's important for us to think about this. We're, we're looking at our future. We're looking at Joseph as the adult taking care of his adult siblings and pops. And who knows, you know, with, with Leah and them too. There's so much here to think about for our lives. Who we want to be when we're Jacob. Who cares if you're Pharaoh, although we don't want to be disrespectful to that authority. And who we want to be as that adult child. That's a blessing to our dad and our other adult siblings who have betrayed us and thrown us under the bus and sold us into human trafficking, which is exactly what they did to him. So now we get to, we close out tonight with Joseph 
just being Joseph. So rad. Verse 13. Now there was no bread in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that it was found in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. So when the money failed in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us bread, for why should we die in your presence? For the money has failed. By the way, when economies collapse, the money fails. And all that matters is bread. If you haven't figured that one out, you can study the collapse of the Argentinian economy years ago, Europe during World War II, World War I, vast parts of the world. Bread... Money is confidence in what's behind it, the government. And hyperinflation is when people don't believe in the government and money fails. Bread always trumps money when there's a severe famine. I don't know what the application is, but maybe think about it when you wake up at 3 in the morning. Money fails because it's confidence in men. And what did Jesus say about our bread anyways? Give us this day our daily bread. What did Paul the Apostle say in the power of the Holy Spirit? With food and clothing, we'll be content. There are basic needs that we have, and the Lord has promised to meet those needs. And he wants to feed, feed us manna like he fed the Jews, manna in the wilderness, to teach them to be dependent upon him. He wants us to learn that he's a provider for our lives. So whether it seems like we have a lot to be given that we can share or just enough to get by, the Lord's a provider. We look to the Lord. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. One time I quoted that verse to Jeremy, and I said, the Lord owns uh, a thousand cattle on the hill. And Jeremy goes, uh, I think it's a, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I'm like, well, that's just an upgrade. <laughs> boy, boy, we just expanded the kingdom. That's an upgrade. I'm like, thanks, Jeremy. <laughs> Old pastor Jeremy, I was like, oh. And like, I don't know why I always quoted that wrong, but I was like, he owns a cattle on a thousand hills. I was like, he owns a thousand cattle on the hill. And he's like, I think it's a little bit bigger than that. You know, I think his resources are a little bit deeper than that. But the money, the money can fail. It's just, man, the money can fail. Uh, the Lord is, is our provider. And Joseph had a great plan. So we pick it up in verse 16. The people are like, hey, the money's failing. They just want food. All the wealth in the world, all the wealth in the world, it just doesn't mean anything when you're hungry. Like you look at any war zone, all the wealth in the world doesn't mean anything when you're hungry. It's nothing. Like in the end, food and water, contentment, relationship with the Lord is number one in his provision for us. So in verse 16, Joseph says this, give your livestock and I will give you bread for your livestock if the money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the cattle, the herds, and for the donkeys. Thus he fed them bread in exchange for all their livestock that year. When that year had ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, Look, uh, we will not hide from my, uh, my Lord that our money's gone. My Lord also has our herds of livestock. There's nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for bread, and we will... And we in our land will be servants of Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. Then Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for every man of the Egyptians sold his field, because the famine was severe upon them. So the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he moved them into the cities from one end of the borders to Egypt to the other end. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had rations allotted to them by Pharaoh, and they ate their rations which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their lands. 
Then Joseph said to the people, Indeed, I have bought you and your land this day for Pharaoh. Look, here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And it shall come to pass in the harvest that you shall give one-fifth to Pharaoh. Four-fifths shall be your own as a seed for the field and for your food and for those of your household and as food for your little ones. So they said, You have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. And Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt to this day that Pharaoh should have one-fifth except for the land of the priests only, which did not become Pharaoh's. Now, this is interesting because I've read in commentaries where Joseph is attacked for this and that somehow he set up the Jews to be slaves in Egypt later on because he consolidated the power, centralized the power of Pharaoh and all that stuff. There's nothing in the Bible that says that. So if you've ever read something like that, there's nothing in the Bible that says that. I look at the Bible and this is what, this is what I see. I see a man who has a great business plan who saved his family, took care of his adult siblings, took care of his father, worked hard for his boss, made his boss a prophet. Isn't that what you're hired for, by the way? You never go on a job interview. They're not hiring you to be cool. That's the hardest thing about being a pro surfer and not being a pro surfer. When you're a pro surfer, you're paid to be cool. But when you're not a pro surfer, you're not paid to be cool. And hey, I don't know, like you're missing something here, Mr. You know, California kid, but no one's paying you to be cool. You're paid to show up at a certain time, do a certain job, and it doesn't matter. Like, Timmy's got a major job interview next week. Kaylee, you interview people all the time with Starbucks. You get, you get these people that come into you and you're just like, hey, look, no one's paying you to be cool. You're paid to come here and you're going to be paid X amount of money. And the idea is that when you work, you return that amount of money back to the benefit of the company. So we all have jobs. So when we come back next week, that's how it works. So Joseph is, is not only, he's in, Joseph like, okay, who's the employee of the month in October? Joseph. November, Joseph. Dikabre in Russian, Joseph. Who's employee of, uh, of the year? Got in Russian, got, right? Año in Spanish. Who's employee? Empleado de año. Yosef, Jose, right? He's employee of the year. Like, you know, when you go to a place and it's, there they are, like you see it at Kaiser or whatever, like Joseph, 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 Joseph. Because he saved everybody. And listen, not only that, the consumers like him. They like him because they said, you saved our life. We like, we like shopping at Joseph's Food Mart. We realize you have all of our money, all of our livestock, commodities, and all of our land. For we like you because we would have died if it wasn't for you. You have saved our lives. Now, that's a good employee. You're making money for your boss, and you're saving the consumers' lives. And you're providing goods for them without running out of supply. If you ever watch Shark Tank, the store, the, excuse me, if you ever watch Shark Tank where they get people that pitch an idea and they're going to be funded by Mark Cuban and these guys, whatever, to do like, you got to have a plan. But one of the things they always worry about is can you get the goods to the consumer? Supply and demand. Well, Joseph had the supply, and he met the demand, and it never ran out. The only thing that trumps that is, is the Lord providing man in the wilderness, right? Yeah, yeah. Forty years, no one lacked, right? Joseph's good, but God's model is a little better a few centuries later with the man in the wilderness. No one had any lack. Those who had more need, God provided. Those who had less, God provided. But Joseph is amazing here. What an amazing man. He took all those heartaches. He said when he named his children, one, he's caused me to forget the heartache that I went through. And the other is fruitful. He made me fruitful in this foreign land. And we say bloom where you're planted. Bloom where you're planted. And that's what Joseph did. 
And everything he touched was better because he touched it. And he just overflowed with blessings to everyone around him, those above him, those beside him, and those beneath him. He was a 360 of blessing to humanity in 3D. And that's who we want to be. Joseph's amazing. No wonder when Jacob prophesies about him in chapter 49, he says, Joseph's a fruitful bow. He's super fruitful. Everything he does is fruitful. He calls his kids fruitful because he's fruitful. That's who we want to be. Just love the Lord, serve the Lord. Be kind, loving, gentle, forgiving, compassionate. The fruit of the Spirit will be fruitful, will be plenty fruitful. Man, what a great employee. What a great brother. What a great son. What a great dad. What a great husband. What an amazing man. Verse 27. So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt in the country of Goshen. They had possessions there and grew and multiplied exceedingly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Now if I found favor in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. Then he said to me, swear to me. And he swore to him. So Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed. And we're going to pick this up next week where this incredible bedside chat takes place where Jacob is so heroic. He's in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith for what he says in his very end of his life in assisted living, if not memory care, what he says. But we leave off tonight with him on the bed saying, please, son, whatever you do, do not bury me in Egypt. I had to go bury my mom in Cleveland. She didn't want to be buried in California. She wanted to be buried right next to her brother and her sister and her grandmother. And I started this year taking my mom to Cleveland with my brother and sister to lay her to rest where she wanted to be laid to rest on a cold, snowy day in January. And you know what my sister said to me? She says, I want to be buried here too. And there's one spot left on that group plot. I said, all right, if you feel that way later on, if you go before me, I'll bring you back to Cleveland and bury you with mom. You know, this is the human experience, WG. This is this life. This is life. And we're living it. And we live it by faith. And we put Jesus over all of it, in front of it, behind it, and to our right and to our left. And it just, it's just the fullness of the, of the plans and purposes by which we're created for. This is all part of life. When, when Jacob, you know, grabs him right there, he's like, don't bury me in Egypt, please, son, please. You know, who knows what your parents might say to you? Who knows what they did say to you? Please. Be the person of faith that they trust on that day. Amen? Yeah. It might not just be your parents. It could be anyone. But be the person they trust in the critical moments of life. Because when you're thinking about where you're going to be buried, that's a pretty critical moment, don't you think? When you're dying and you're thinking about where you're going to be buried, that's a pretty critical moment in your human experience. Be the person next to that person that's a person of faith and of trust and character and integrity that glorifies Jesus Christ and has the gospel right there.